Welcome to In Search of the Mind of God. We invite you to search with us the mind of God. When searching His Word, we can always be sure of our salvation will not be used on man's ideas or false feelings. It will never be our purpose to promote any denominational doctrine of any religious group. Man is fallible. God is not. This program is brought to you by the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. We are located at 384 East Midway Road here in White City, Florida. This program contains previous recordings from Joe Wilson, who graduated from this life in 2018. We invite you to join us for worship. Personal Bible study is available, and we propose to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. something that uh, is new. This is the new Sunday, the new year, the first Sunday of the new year. So I want to discuss with you new things. In Revelation, the 21st chapter, the Bible talks about the whole story of Christ coming to a finality as the Lamb slain. The purpose of the book of Revelation has not changed. The purpose of the uncovering of Jesus Christ as was given him a charge by God the Father to fulfill has now been completed. The story that is told in the 21st chapter is the conclusion of the story that began in the first chapter. In chapter 4, we saw the lamb slain. And he came and took covenants out of the hand of the Father. These covenants were seals. And he in this chapter is therefore seen as he comes and takes the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. There were seven seals or covenants against man that had to be removed before man could be forgiven of sin. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, as Paul writes in Colossians 2.14 and in Ephesians 2.15. So we're not to conclude that the New Testament law is a workover of the law of Moses. It is not a reinvention or reinvention of the law. And if this be true, we know that what Jesus says in the eighth verse of this chapter of Revelation 21, or in this fifth, sixth verse, he says, I make all things new. Everything in this is going to be new. If you look up the word new, as is used in the Greek language, this means never used, not having been done before. So as we make ourselves known as to the plan of God, and that Jesus, as he has saved us, made us kings and priests. The scene that began opening in chapter 4 concludes in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. One opens with the victory of the lamb slain. The other opens with the lamb on the throne. What began at Calvary concluded at Pentecost. Or the old covenant ended and the New Testament began. This is the great mystery. 
that began before the world was created. This is truly then the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we read these verses and as we look at these words, we have an appreciation for what Jesus was doing. There's a lot of people that talk about the new heavens and the new earth. They talk about it but don't understand it. As they discuss it, they find themselves mixed in a a cesspool of false denominational doctrine that tries to let on like that this is not going to occur until the end of time. But as Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and is seen so seated in this chapter, what he said had come to pass at the moment of time in which he was speaking. He had made all things new. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, if you look at the Bible in talking about the new heavens and the new earth, you need to look at Isaiah, the 65th chapter and the 17th verse and the 66th chapter. Or you can look at 2 Peter, the 3rd chapter and the 13th verse, and you'll see the phraseology, new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 65 and 66 and in 2 Peter, the 3rd chapter, they're all talking about the same thing. It is new it is there is a new authority and there is a new directive given to those who are under authority it is a new situation it is a new circumstance it is totally never been before as it is now in verse 2 of revelation 21 they are called the new jerusalem this new heaven and new earth is. They are also called the bride of Christ. And verse 3 tells us that they are also named the tabernacle of God with man. So we don't have to be misunderstanding of what's being taught. The new heaven and the new earth have now come. The church of Christ came to the world in the year AD 33 at 9 o'clock on that Sunday morning. And the old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses and the uh, Patriarchal Dispensation were uh, passed away. That means they were no more. And then Paul says there was no more sea. A sea was a terminology that was used in the fourth chapter that was defining sin. The sin was that which separated man from God. And man could not get into the fellowship with God because the sea prevented him. And he couldn't cross that sea. But there was one that God sent from heaven to man. Instead of man going to heaven for God, God sent from heaven to man, crossed that sea, came and lived for 33 years amongst men, so that we that are here on this earth can have the forgiveness of sin by the blood that he shed. And verse 5 shows the perfection that the new heavens and the new world came when they who would live and reign with Christ as kings and priests would be joyful because he'd wipe away all the tears that was from their eyes or he'd take all the sin away that separated them from God the Father because old things are passed away. And he said, and behold, all things are become new. 
In verse 6, the apostle writes, he shows that Christ had completed his work. Now, we're familiar with this terminology, but we don't look at it in the sense that it is given as it is taught here because he says, it is finished. The same words that Jesus cried on Calvary's tree, the same word that is spoken here shows that the Alpha and the Omega that was seen walking in the midst of the churches in chapter 1 the churches who were called the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 21, the churches that is called the new bride of the new Jerusalem or the new tabernacle, which God pitched, by the way, and not man, as is mentioned in Hebrews 8 and 2. This church is made up of God's people instead of the old Jerusalem, the old tabernacle, or the old nation that was on the earth of which and from which sin could not be forgiven. The reason sin could not be forgiven there is because the new sacrifice had not been offered. And the new sacrifice brought about a new covenant, which brought about a new church, which brought about a new name, which brought about a new fellowship, which brought about a new situation with God and man who was a part of the church, which brings about a new distinction in what we are named and what we are called. You say, well, boy, you're wearing that new out. Well, I didn't do this. God says, I made everything new. So we don't go back to the law of Moses and look for anything. There's a new throne and a new king. And this king that sits on this throne can wipe away all tears. Christ had made all things new. The lamb is now the lion of the tribe of Judah and reigns as king immortal. Old Jerusalem had been burned. The capital was gone. And a new city of God, that which Abraham looked for, had now come from heaven to man. I get into a lot of trouble with some of my brethren because they think that Revelation, the 20th chapter, and uh, the 11th through the 15th verses are talking about eternal damnation and eternal hell. We're the ones that divided the chapters into chapters and verses. This is a letter, and a letter doesn't stop and say, well, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Paragraphs go, and paragraphs are, and they start a new thought. To understand about Revelation, the 20th chapter, and i got to put this in. It won't cost you anything extra. I, uh, to understand what the 20th chapter, the 11th through the 15th verses are, is to understand what the 21st chapter and the first eight verses are speaking about. You got it, something new. What was old? Opposite to the scene of Revelation, the 20th chapter, and 11th through the 15th verses, these would not reign with Christ. Who were they? He said, I saw a great white throne. You hear all the denominational premillennialists and all the uh, uh, purveyors of the lies from the uh, place of hell talk about the, the great white throne judgment. Well, I can tell you when the great white throne judgment came. The great white throne judgment came when Jesus died on Calvary's tree that men could be forgiven. Look, let's read. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it whose face the earth and the heaven had fled away And there was no more place for them. The law of Moses was gone, friend. 
We now have a new king. We have a new Lord. And oh yes, he's not waiting to come back to Jerusalem to rule and reign a thousand years. If you look at the 11th verse, he says, he's sitting there now. And as he ascended to God the Father and he received the throne as was mentioned in Acts, the second chapter, the 29th and the 30th verses, David said, I saw uh, that Jesus Christ rose on a cloud, or Daniel did, to the ancient of days, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And he was brought near before him, and there was given him a kingdom and dominion and power. Daniel then is in chorus with David, and he said David was a prophet, knowing that God had sworn unto him by the fruit of his loins according to the flesh. He would raise up one to sit upon his throne. He, seeing this beforehand, spake of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was resurrected, he went and sat down at the right hand of God to rule and reign. But he said, I saw the dead. These are those who had not been forgiven of sin. These are they who had not been baptized for the remission of sins. Commonly called amongst linguistics, the Jewish people. They who had depended upon the fellowship that the law of Moses had brought into existence. I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. You see, we sing this song. I know my name is in the book. It's been written down. The book of life is something that's parallel to the uh, inheritance records that the Jew participated in when their sons were born because they were put down in the inheritance records because of circumcision so that they would inherit the land promise. Well, in Christianity, our name's written in the antitype of the hierarchy or of the structure of inheritance which was brought about in the temple of Jerusalem. And now our record is written in the temple in heaven where Jesus is only king of kings and lord of lords with all authority. And there having it written down, we are in a place to be recorded in heaven. So as our name is written there, of course, there's other people that are not in the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The judgment now would not be something of the law or something of the patriarchs. It would now be of Jesus Christ. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And whosoever was not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But I saw a new heaven and a new earth. All those who were obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost until today have their names written in the book of life. They who had been a part of old Jerusalem, who had lived on earth with earthly things, who had had a kingdom that was supposed to be an earthly kingdom that David had been reigning over at one time. God had taken the kingdom away from them and cast their children and themselves into outer darkness. Jesus said this in Matthew the 8th chapter and the 12th verse or again in Matthew 21, 33. The old people who had committed whoredom 
God had divorced and had taken a new bride. And the marriage of the Lamb in, in Revelation 19 and 20 had come so that we could now be said to be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, for we're one with Christ. And these are they whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven in this new heaven and new earth. The church of Christ had come to the earth. The church of Christ was now amongst men. Jerusalem, where God had placed his name, had changed. Instead of being a place in Jerusalem or Judea or on the earth over in the Palestinian shores, the place now that God had placed his name had become new at a different place. The authority that Moses had had over the people of all the earth, which had never been over those who were in heaven, had now been changed and expanded so that that authority was not in Palestine, not on the earth, but it had come to the earth. And it describes a different kind of Jerusalem where curtains came all the way down to the floor. I don't know if you've ever read this or not. But I found this the other day as I was reading and studying. And if you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. And as you look at it, talking about the third heaven, Ezekiel talks about he who, I mean Ecclesiastes, talks about he who's come from bondage, whose curtains had come all the way down to the floor. The third heaven had been now entered in. The gospel of Christ had brought heaven all the way down to the earth, all the way to those who were in prison, all they who had been involved in sin and debauchery. God said, this is the sacrifice, and he came out of slavery. And as he came out of slavery, this bondage was a part of those which came all the way to the floor. Look at Ecclesiastes 4. So I returned And I considered the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed. And they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power. But they had no comforter. Wherefore I praised the dead which which were already dead. More than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been. Who hath not seen the evil work that is under the sun. Again, I considered all travail and every right work, and that, uh, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. These are they that are involved in the law of God. And as they are involved in the law of God, they are participants in the plan of God that had come from heaven to the earth and therefore makes us a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are they whom God had made a new creation. I just can't wear this word out enough when I talk about the church of Christ. Jesus said, I make everything. We're a new creation. Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Our sins have been forgiven. They are gone. And as the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation shows the completion of the victory of Jesus Christ over the seven seals or the covenants that had been made against man, 
where tears would no longer be shed because they would mourn and could not be comforted, where there was a great offering that had been participated in by all those who were a member of the church of Christ and that they who were a part of the church had been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. John said, I saw this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And it was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Yes, this wedding ceremony had already been consummated. And Jesus had been married to the church of Christ. Paul said in Romans, the seventh chapter and the fourth verse, you become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you might be married to another, even to him whom God hath raised from the dead. So the church of Christ and Christ were married. And as the gospel came to the world, the message would go out into all the world through the church of Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And they who mourned because there was no possible way that sin could be forgiven would have that opportunity taken care of. They cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter could say, Mourn no more. Have no more appetite for your insecurity. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this Jesus, whom you crucified, has been raised from the dead, and he's seated at the right hand of God. Now listen to this. Angels principalities and powers being made subject unto him. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, don't cut me off. Listen to the next verse. Who has gone into the heavens? Angels, principalities, and powers being made subject unto him. Our king reigns in heaven and on earth. And it's not like the resulting kingdom of the premillennialists in trying to get Jesus to come back to the earth. Can you imagine Jesus abdicating a throne? that reigned over heaven and all the earth and then coming back down here to come to a little place called Jerusalem in a little area in the Palestinian land and sitting there to reign for a thousand years and giving up everything that God had given him in heaven and on earth. And that's just how ridiculous premillennialism is. And I heard a great voice, verse 3. A great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Now, when we talk about the tabernacle of God, it's a place where God can dwell. It's a place that God has its name. The tabernacle, as is mentioned here, is something that is talked about in other places in the word of God. So that we don't misunderstand the verbiage that's being used. We talk about the tabernacle that was mentioned all the time in the Old Testament as the place where God dwelt. The Jews carried this tabernacle with them wherever they went. But in the Christian dispensation, this tabernacle would be in heaven. 
Look in Acts the 15th chapter and the 15th and 16th verses. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this I will return and I'll build again the tabernacle of David which is taken and fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up. It's all going to be new. And the tabernacle of heaven or the place where God dwells is going to be something that of which Jesus is king. So Christ's throne is in heaven. Would his throne be out of the borders of his kingdom? Well, it couldn't be if his kingdom was over heaven. Would it be over the earth? Well, it had to be if his borders were on the earth. But if his kingdom was in heaven and in earth, he is then that which was said, all authority hath been given unto me. Listen to the words. In heaven... And on earth, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The head then of the church of Christ is in heaven. Somebody asked me the other day, where's the headquarters of the church of Christ? I said, where the head is. Well, who's the head of the church of Christ? I said, Christ, he's the head over the body of the church. That's what he said. Look at Ephesians 5, 23 through 25. And he is the head of the body of the church. See, I didn't have to guess about that. So the head is in heaven. And the head being in heaven is where the headquarters of the church of Christ is. All authority, everything that we believe and teach, everything that we talk about comes from the head who's in heaven and from the headquarters where Christ reigns at the right hand of God the Father. There is then in that situation in heaven a thing that is called no more sea. The sea of glass that was seen in Revelation 4 and 15 is gone. Sin has been removed. Everything that stood between God and man is no longer standing. Christ had removed the devil's power over death and forgiven those sins that had not been forgiven in the Old Testament covenant, Hebrews 9, 14 and 15. He had now married the church of Christ and had made children of God out of those who had not been his children. There is nothing then that could stand between God and his children anymore. There's no principality. There's no power. What could separate us from the love of God? Neither height nor depth nor uh, any such thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ had crossed the sea and come to man, but when he returned to reign, he removed and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What do you mean by that? Well, the very fact that when a person who's a child of God dies, there is no sea between him and God. There is no sin that will keep him separated from God. Heaven and earth are made one. We're in the kingdom of Christ. There's no middle There's no place for us to go. There's no paradise for us to be restrained. Paul says, we know that if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God not made with hands eternal in the heavens. In 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, he then later says to the Philippian brethren, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. 
I get to go to be with the Lord in heaven. Christ had the power to reign and had the dominion over both heaven and earth. And he had combined both as one. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, the third chapter, the 14th and the 15th verses, I thank God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath made both one, who hath made those in heaven and on earth one. I thank God. And in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he hath taken both, Ephesians uh, 1 and 10, and it made both one. So those who had been in paradise in heaven and had been in paradise un, in the heart of the earth and those who had never sinned and those who had been retained until sin could be forgiven were in a new situation. There would no longer be any sin that would separate them from God. You know, Jesus knew what he was talking about then. When he came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Then Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Listen to what Jesus said. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now listen. And the gates of hell shall not separate me from it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is far better for me to die, to be with the Lord, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 5 and verse 7, than it is to stay in this world. So he who had power over heaven and death had caused us to pass from death into life, literally, as the scriptures teach, and as the Corinthian letter, uh, letter writes, we have passed from death into life, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. God wiped all the tears away. There was no more death. It's gone. There was no sorrow, no crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. All sin that had been committed was gone. The blood of Christ had taken care of every sin. Everything was made new. And he that sat upon the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It's done. It's finished. That that I was charged with the responsibility of doing, that which God the Father uncovered me to explain to the world in chapter 1 and verse 1 of the book of Revelation, that which the prophets had predicted and prophesied and told about, that which has been mentioned had, that had to come to pass in a short period of time, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the conclusion of that work and the ramifications of the results upon the sons of man has now been finished. I've completed it. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, this being a thirst of the fountain of the water of life is the Holy Spirit, whom God, in Acts 5.32, gives to all them that obey him. Jesus cried in the last day of the Passover in John 7 and said, Let him that cometh unto me drink of the water of life. And 
They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. But John keeps writing, thank God. And he said the water of life is the Holy Spirit to whom God will give those that are obedient. So Jesus said, I'm going to give them the Spirit of God. And this Spirit of God is going to be able to retain and sustain. It's going to be able to keep new and fresh. It's going to keep or be able to keep forgiven and conversant. It's going to be able to allow them to make they whom I have brought into new situation, a new kingdom and a new life, new citizens of eternal heaven. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I'll be his God, and he shall be my son. Ah, in the book of Hebrews, the second chapter, if you want to flip back quickly, when he's talking about Jesus Christ in Hebrews 2. Jesus is said to be he who comes amongst his brethren and the sons of men, and he says, I'll declare my name unto my brethren. And in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. I will not be ashamed to be their God, and they will be my people. Everything's new in the church of Christ. Everybody that comes into it is a new creation in a new circumstance, in a new situation under a new kingdom, under a new king, with a new law. I just can't wear it out. He says, behold, I make all things new. Ah, the blessing and the joy that gives you and I to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, that there is no time of separation or place where God is not when life on this earth is ended gives us the joy of knowing he that made all things new hath prepared for us a city. Where Hebrews 11 says, where God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This revelation, as is spoken of, the final message of the story of Jesus Christ, then explains what Christ did when he came to this world And he said, I've accomplished everything. It's done. It's over. It's finished. That which was described as a beginning work that Christ had been given by God the Father when he came to the world has now been completed. Would you like to be new? You say, Joe, I'm kind of old. Would you like to be new? If I could offer you something, that would take all the years from your body. Would take all the pain and the anguish from your body. Would take all the problems from your digestive system or whatever else is involved. If I could give you something that would cause everything about you to be new, would you turn it down? I don't care if you're 110 years old, would you turn it down? If I could tell you that you could be, as far as God is concerned, a new creation a new creature, that there would be no more sin, as a sea is described, that will separate you from God. Would you turn him down? 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. How do you get into Christ? I was hoping you would ask. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. In Mark 16 and 16, and the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6, 3 and 4, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, where he shed his blood. And as we're baptized into Christ, that puts us in Christ. If we are in Christ, we're a new creation. You don't have to worry about the sins that you committed back 100 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, 10 minutes ago. And for we who are in Christ, who have committed sins since we were baptized into Christ, we have this blood because we've been a part of and made a member of the body of Christ in which the blood of Christ flows. We have this blood that will continue to wash away every sin we've ever committed. So to define the church of Christ, it's everything that's new and everyone that is new. Every sin is gone. There's no sea between you and God. You can now come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ in heaven where the king sits, reigns, and rules who's the head of the church of Christ. And by the way, where's the head of your denomination? Oh, you say them boys are in the grave. Well, isn't that a bad place to be? You're going to go to, the, to some burial vault and try to get them to help you? Why not get in a position where Jesus Christ, who is the head, who reigns in heaven, who can forgive you of your sin, who can allow you to be a part of a new creation and a new kingdom, can wash your sins away and make you a member of the body of Christ. Whatever your need is, will you come as we stand and sing? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. We hope you have profited from today's study of In Search of the Mind of God. If you would like a recording of today's program, please visit our website, our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or even our YouTube channel. Remember, never take man's word, only God's word, the Bible. Demanding a book, chapter, and verse for everything you accept on its belief. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast, In Search of the Mind of God, with graduated preacher Joe Wilson. Good morning, and welcome to the Fort St. Lucie Church of Christ. It's always encouraging to see our brothers and sisters in Christ come around each first day of the week, take the Lord's Supper, and to want and learn and yearn to learn more about the Word of God and the mind of Him. This morning, I want to talk about a subject that's often overlooked. In fact, we never pay any attention to it. If you heard Chris read the last verse which he read, and he says, And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. My question is, why did the eunuch rejoice? What was the purpose of this rejoicing? What did he know that we've overlooked? And why would he be so happy about a circumstance that happened? We first need to understand what's happened earlier on in this chapter. And we need to dig a little deeper to find out exactly what the circumstances are. You see, Philip was chased from Jerusalem because of the persecution of Paul, 
we can find this in uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Now, God didn't force Paul to persecute the church, but through his providence, perhaps he used this occasion to spread the gospel to Samaria. Though it preached Christ to them, in verse 5, and there was great joy in the city. We see this in verse 8. Now, what did Philip preach to these people? The kingdom of God, the church, and the name of Jesus as the authority. Now, what did they do? They were baptized. Plus, Simon also was in verse 13. We are also told in this chapter how the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Philip was called away from this great revival to go down a lonely road to meet one man. See, the Word of God is perfect in its, in its way. It gives us an example to demoralize and to, and to defeat denominationalism or the lies of hell that are, born out of, uh, that are born from the womb of hell. We always can go look to the Scriptures because they were given through perfect inspiration as our guide and our moral compass in order to guide our lives. Now, the account of this conversation of the man of Ethiopia is encouraging and enlightening one. He had many good traits. See, we never pay attention to actually what's going on. All we see is a focus. We focus, focus, focus. We never actually see what's going on in the peripheral. But this man had many good traits. He was a religious man. He believed in God and that his word was God's word. We can see in verse 27 in Acts chapter 8 that he had been to Jerusalem for to worship. He was honest. He was trustworthy. After all, he was a treasurer for Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. So we know he wasn't just a flunky that was on this road for no reason. We can see this is a devout man. He was studious. He was reading the Bible. We can see this from verse, uh, verse 30 in Acts chapter 8. But like all of us reading the scriptures, sometimes we need some help. In verse 31, he didn't understand what was going on because he was reading out of the Old Testament and he was reading without inspiration to show him the fulfillment. Now, we do not need the same help today because we have the complete scripture recorded and all inspiration is recorded for us to understand. However, every once in a while, a little extra help is very helpful. Though he was a religious man, though he was a trustworthy man, he was still lost. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No matter, see, just because this eunuch was reading the Scripture, just because he believed the Scripture was the Word of God, did not save him. The eunuch needed to be taught. Acts 8 records the account of his conversation and that the man was baptized in verse 39. And he went on his way rejoicing. That's what we're studying this morning. Why did this man go upon his way rejoicing? Why did he rejoice at all? Because of all the things that this man had learned in this conversation. Exactly what did Philip say? Well, it was not recorded, but we do know is that he preached unto him the word. Or he preached unto him Jesus. You see, John chapter 1 and 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was at the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him there was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Philip is preaching to him Jesus, or preaching to him the Word. We can make that correlation now, correct? But see, if we go back to Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, he preached the same Word in Samaria. What was the results? He found the same results in Samaria that he found with this eunuch, that he was baptized. Are we starting to see a pattern develop here? Let's just take a break from this thought for a minute. Are we starting to see a pattern in Acts chapter 8 where Philip was preaching the Word and these people were baptized? Did he, did he ever preach in these? All you got to do is believe a little prayer, or all you got to do is say a little prayer in your heart, come kneel it down at some dude's altar, and you'll be saved. Nope. We didn't hear a bit of that here. We see where Philip preached unto him Jesus. The next thing we see is we see eunuch, the eunuch being baptized. After that, he goes on his way rejoicing. But our question is why? What was involved in preaching Jesus? Well, this is the part of the sermon that comes to the members of the church to help, it, to help us try to convert those who were lost. You see, in order to convert somebody, you first have to teach them that they are in sin. That they're lost. If if they're not lost, then there's no consequence or no reward for them to obey the Scripture. Yes or no? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So all of us have sinned, so all of us need to be saved. Amen? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says that it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. So we can see that we need help. Now, sin doesn't mean much if there's not a consequence to sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust and enticed. Then when, he hath come, then when, he hath con, then when lust hath conceived, if I could speak this morning, it bring forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bring forth death. So the consequence of sin is what? Death. So let's just put, let's put some little reminders here on the board. So, so far we've gone over, we've gone that Jesus is the Word. The Word which Philip preached. We can all agree on that because we've already seen that, correct? Now we can see that sin is everyone for all, for all. That doesn't mean some. For all have sinned. So everyone has sinned. And in sinning, we need help. And we see that sin is death. Okay, now that we've got the little visual cues out of the way, we'll keep going. This is important for us to understand, because if we don't know what the consequence is, there's no reason to change it. When you're trying to teach somebody the Word of God, if they don't understand that they're damned, 
there's no reason for them to obey the gospel. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that He cannot save, neither is is His ear heavy that He cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear you. And there's a lot of there's a lot of concentration packed in that little bitty verse. Let's say let's do that again. But your iniquities have separated you between you and your God. So sin or iniquities have separated you from you and your God. In other words, you're damned. Yes or no? Now I'm asking rhetorical questions. If you're not familiar with the way I preach, I carry a conversation on rather than try to get up here and dictate. I try to make sure that this is so simple that you cannot miss it. So your iniquities have separated you from God. And He has hid His face. That He what? That He cannot hear you. So what does prayer do for a sinner? Absolutely nothing. If you can't be heard, there is no way for salvation. Amen. The other thing that the eunuch learned from the consequences of sin is that he had a Savior. Now we're starting to look up. We're going right back up the hill. We've already gone to the bottom. We've seen where he was damned. Now we're going to ride back up that hill. You see, the eunuch was taught that there was a Savior. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed on Him should, be, should not perish but have everlasting life. This is what Philip is teaching. Philip is teaching Jesus. Philip is teaching the Word. Philip is preaching the gospel to the eunuch. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord is who? Christ the Lord is Jesus. Christ the Lord is the Word. We're going to have to tie all this together so you know who Philip was talking about. See, we don't have an exact context of exactly what Philip said. It was not written down every word that he said. All we know is he said, or the Bible records, he preached unto him Jesus. So let's find out what this Jesus is. Let's find out what this word is. Since they all have the same meaning, let's find out what was preached. Matthew 1.21 And he shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which is lost. Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 Even as the Son of Man come, came not to minister unto, but to minister and to give his life for ransom for many. See, he's a Savior. He gives his life for what? For the remission of sins. Why did he need to give his life for remission of sins? Because we had sin and the consequence of sin is death. Acts 13.38 records, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. You see, here we're starting to enter into another phase of the plan of salvation. We're starting to enter into repentance, just so slightly. We'll get there, don't worry. But see, we're going into repentance, because look at here from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. So if you were in sin before, and God heareth not the prayer of a sinner, 
So you couldn't pray for salvation. You also couldn't obey through the law of Moses. Why? Because there's a New Testament in play. There's a new law that has come. And that new law is what Philip preached unto the eunuch, which is Jesus. So the eunuch not only learned that there's a Savior, the eunuch learned that there's forgiveness of sin. Acts chapter 2, 38 records, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you. Why, Peter? For the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 22, 16 records, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and do what? And wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, is there anywhere in there that you ever read that prayer did that? Now, if I can read, and I'm pretty sure I can, I can read in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22, where Saul, on the road to Damascus, was blinded by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said, Saul, Saul, why, why are you kicking against the pricks? Why are you fighting this? We know, see, Saul, in his mind, was a devout Jew, and he was. And he was trying to keep the Jewish faith pure. And keeping the Jewish faith pure, we see in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, he was, he was persecuting the church of Christ. He was trying to rid this, what he thought was a sect of Judaism, he was trying to rid it, purify the faith, just like we edify one another. Amen? In doing this, the church of Christ was spread abroad. Now, he finds out in Acts chapter twenty-two, sixteen, after he has prayed for three days and three nights, and he's fasted, and he's done everything he could possibly do, everything denominationalism teaches, Saul at this point has already done, what's the first thing he hears? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, if prayer, fasting, and man's doctrine was the way to, to salvation, then why did, why did he waste his time in telling him that he needed to be baptized for remission of sins? What was the purpose of it? Acts chapter 5, verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be, pray, to be prince and savior, for to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. So what has the eunuch learned so far? The eunuch's learned what sin is. He's learned the consequence of sin. He's learned there's a savior. He's learned that there's a possibility for sin to be forgiven. What's the next thing he learns? He learns that the blood of Jesus exists. Ephesians chapter 1, 7, In whom we have redemption through His blood. Uh-oh, we're going to go to the second point I made. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. If you enjoyed today's sermon, read our regularly updated blog for insightful articles by visiting us online at pslchurchofchrist.com. If you would like to watch previous sermons, they can be viewed on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash pslchurchofchrist. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com 
slash PSL Church of Christ. Or if you prefer to visit us in person to learn more on Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m., as well as Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. And you can visit us at 384 East Midway Road next to Walgreens. See you next week.